My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. Today, my guest on the show is Albert Wenger, and the topic of discussion is technological unemployment, universal basic income, and his latest book titled World After Capital. Albert is a venture capitalist and partner at Union Square Ventures. He was also the president of Delicious and oversaw the company's sale to Yahoo, eventually becoming investor in a number of companies such as Etsy, Tumblr, and Twitter. Albert graduated from Harvard College in economics and computer science and holds a PhD in information technology from MIT. So without further ado, welcome to Singularity One-on-One, -on -one, Albert. It's good to be on the show. Fantastic. So, uh, Albert, let me begin our conversation by asking you to introduce yourself in your own few words for those of our viewers who may not be familiar with you and your work. Well, you, you just provided a fantastic introduction, so I'm not sure I have a ton to add to that. Um, uh, I am a managing partner at Union Square Ventures, and uh, we invest um, in North America and in Europe in uh, internet companies. Um, and we're particularly tend to look for companies that have network effects. Uh, and um, I have a passion for uh, things that um, I believe are having a long-term impact on how we live our lives. Uh, but I also do some technology investing, companies like MongoDB and Twilio that make building some of these applications that impact our lives easier and faster. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. So. Uh how did you get interested in technology in general and and uh, venture capital uh, in particular? And which one got, was first? Was it the the capital investment first that you got interested, or was it? No, I've I've been a computer geek for a very long time. I, uh, as a teenager growing up in Germany, I fell in love with computers. Um, uh, my parents were uh, very supportive. They got me an Apple II um, very early on when those things were quite expensive. And I learned how to program, and I uh, studied computer science, uh, and I've, I love to program to this day, uh, and I love to follow technology and uh, developments in technology, uh, uh, you know, whether it's deep learning, for instance, or even technology outside of my field, like uh, things like CRISPR. So uh, technology was uh, the first fascination, and then uh, I happened to get interested in the business side and in the economics of it. Um, because it became apparent to me sort of quite early on that, that there was something really profound and uh, uh, deep here that um, would have a big impact on how business works and how the economy works as a whole. Very interesting. Uh, and because this is a show called Singularity One-on-One, -on -one, I inevitably have to start by asking you first, What's your take on the technological singularity? Uh, I don't spend a huge amount of my time thinking about it. Um, I, I, uh, I think it's something that could happen. Um, uh, I, I don't have a feeling that it's imminent. Um, uh, but, you know, these things are a probability distribution. So I uh, wouldn't rule it out, but also I'm not like a, oh, my God, it's uh, happening and it's around the corner. So if you were to rate that probability with a percentage number, what would that be like? Oh, I don't know um, that it'll ever happen. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd say there's a there's a you know twenty percent chance that it'll ever happen. Oh, really? And and how about uh, in sort of the Kurtzwellian timeline by let's say twenty forty five, twenty fifty? Oh, I uh, I think that's optimistic. I see. I see. I I, I, I I'm a big believer that um, things always take longer than we think, and then when they come, they're more profound than we think. Ha. Huh. Very, very well put. Okay, and then, so the next question I had for you since you're a venture capitalist was, is the singularity an opportunity to make money? So let me see if I can kind of uh, alter that by saying, is artificial intelligence, an, as we see it right now today, an opportunity to make money? Oh, absolutely. And we have invested in a number of machine learning companies. Some of which are not overtly machine learning companies. If you think of a, give us some examples. Yeah, sure. If you absolutely, if you think of a company like Sift Science, um, they do fraud detection. Um, they use machine learning to do it. Uh, a company like Duolingo, which is a language learning company, but it uses machine learning to 
generate all the language uh, examples and also to score them and to give you a highly adaptive learning experience. Um, we're investors in a company called Clarify uh, that is the most overt machine learning uh, business. They do image recognition and tagging and, and um, soon to expand into other categories. Uh, and um, so, yeah, no, it's definitely something that you can invest in in the here and now. And I think that's tying it back to your previous question about the singularity. I think um, the impact that these technologies are going to have are going to be felt uh, in the very near future. Uh, because we don't need a single machine that is better than a human at all things. Uh, what's happening right now is that we're getting very good at building custom machines that are better than humans at a specific thing that until recently you required a human to do. And that's the thing that is investable in today and it's also the thing that is going to have the impact starting as early as tomorrow or maybe more today. So let me proceed and, and see if we can dig in a little bit deeper here then. Is there an intrinsic advantage that businesses with AI expertise have over those that don't? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that... Uh, I mean, Warren Buffett talks about that he likes for a business to have a moat <laughs> uh, before he invests into something, even though he's famous for usually uh, staying away from technology. And as we've heard recently, that's probably changing. But but still, is artificial intelligence providing that moat that he's talking about? Yeah, so I, I think technology alone is never the source of a moat. Um Usually, if the technology enables a network effect, um, that tends to be the source of the moat. So if you think about Google, for example, search has a non-obvious network effect. The non-obvious network effect in search is that each one of us searching on Google makes Google slightly smarter for other users of Google. Because if you are searching for some edge case um, and you choose a specific link, uh, Google learns from that. Uh, so it's not the algorithm itself that's the defensible bit about Google. It is the very large query volume that continues to make that algorithm smarter and smarter that's the defensible bit. And so I think people are sometimes mistaken if they think that technology alone in the abstract can give them a moat. The moat comes from what the technology lets you do in terms of building a network effect into your business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. And then the, the, the next question then is, which is connected to your answer, of course, is in that case, does it mean that AI is the domain of big, well-funded companies or is there room for small startups to kind of compete and come out of nowhere? Or is it the case where we have the entrenched players like Google and Facebook and all the other huge companies, Apple and, and so on, who would have that sort of first mover advantage? Um, I, no, I, I, I think that if you look at um, more vertical applications and if you look at um, potentially some specific horizontal applications, so vertical, we are investors in a company called HumanDX. And HumanDX is um, building machine learning uh, for diagnosis. And I don't think big companies have necessarily an advantage there. It's, an, it's essentially a new field. Um, people are... Uh, pursuing different strategies for assembling data sets. HumanDX is pursuing a very interesting strategy because they're not going off uh, existing um, medical records. They're um, getting doctors and um, medical students to solve cases using HumanDX. And so they're gathering actual diagnostic steps along the way, <clears throat> which are not really reflected in medical records. Uh, so I don't think anybody's got a particular leg up there. Uh, if you look at broad horizontals, um, you know, again, if you look at uh, SIFT Science, um, you know, uh, they've accumulated a very large and very rapidly growing uh, data set on, on fraud uh, patterns. Um, if you look at Clarify, they're doing a horizontal. Uh, they've trained um, some very interesting models. For instance, they've trained a marketplace model that marketplaces can use for marketplace safety. So, for instance, it can detect whether somebody's trying to list a gun. Um, and again, um, I think in those um, specific areas, uh, a small team uh, that's working on the right problem with the right approach, I think, can be very effective and can build an interesting business. Mm -hmm. I think if you if you look at something like very broad based, like you know, um, consumer, you know, 
um, face recognition or consumer, you know, um, organize the photos on your photo roll. Um, I think, uh, you know, the existing companies that have the user base already are in a much better position to uh, bring that uh, to their users. Uh, some of that may be, they may build themselves if you're Google, but for instance, if you're Samsung and you want to add um, uh, the kind of features to a Samsung photo roll, it's not clear that Samsung's going to build that. They might um, buy it, they might buy it from a startup instead of buying it from Google. Just like Apple bought Siri, for example. For instance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting. So uh, I know that your time is very valuable and very limited, though. So I would move our conversation now to towards uh, your book, which is titled World After Capital. So, Albert, what is World After Capital about? So my fundamental thesis is that humanity <clears throat> has gone through... Um, a couple of big shifts already, and we're at the beginning of yet another big shift. So the big shifts that I <clears throat> talk about are going from the agrarian age, going from the forager age to the agrarian age, and then going from the agrarian age to the industrial age. And I think we are nearing the end of the industrial age, and we're going to go to what I think of as kind of a knowledge age. And each time these um, shifts uh, came about because we made some big breakthroughs in technology that kind of radically expanded what was possible. So the big breakthrough that uh, led us from the forager age to the agrarian age was um, being able to domesticate animals, being able to uh, plow fields, irrigate them, um, figure out that seeds, you can seed plants. Um, so there was a series of kind of breakthroughs and they moved us into the agrarian age. Uh, then, you know, Eventually, we had the Enlightenment, and uh, coming out of that, we had a scientific revolution, which gave us steam power, electric power, gave us chemistry, and that really made the industrial age possible. And now we have these digital machines, and the digital machines are, again, different from anything that's come before it. Um, they're different because of zero marginal cost, which you covered with uh, Jeremy Rifkin. They're also different because of what I call universality, which is that anything that can be computed can be computed by a digital uh, machine. And... Uh, Computing things is a very general activity. If I'm a doctor and I'm taking some inputs like the symptoms of your disease and I am telling you a diagnosis, I'm computing the diagnosis based on your symptoms. That's an act of computation. And so we now know that these machines will be able to perform that act of computation, that act of diagnosis. Uh, and so if you put this two together, zero marginal cost and universality, you we've once again blown the space of what's possible completely wide open and I think we will get a shift that's as profound as those previous shifts and and it's a world that I believe will no longer be dominated by the need to uh, accumulate uh, financial capital and allocate it rapidly to physical capital that won't be the biggest problem that we're facing the biggest problem will be facing how we allocate our attention very interesting. And uh, I, I would pick a number of elements here in the things you said to discuss further. But let me just read a, a bit of a quote from your book here on uh, pertaining to the goals that you uh, uh, pose to yourself uh, with this book. Uh, and it goes like this, quote, World After Capital has two goals. The first goal is to establish that we are in fact experiencing a third such non-linearity. The key argument will be that each prior time, the space of the possible grew rapidly, the binding scarcity constraint for humanity shifted. The invention of agriculture shifted scarcity from food to land. Industrialization in turn shifted scarcity from land to capital. Now digital technologies are shifting scarcity from capital to attention. Scarcity here refers to humanity's ability to meet everyone's basic needs. And then you say the second goal is to proceed to propose policies for facilitating the transition from an industrial society with scarce capital to a knowledge society. Uh, and then you proceed on to say that getting this right is critical for humanity as the two previous shifts, which were marked by massive turmoil and upheaval, including two world wars in the transition from the agrarian age to the industrial age. Already we are seeing signs of increasing conflict within societies and between beliefs across the world. I will argue that to accomplish the transition to a knowledge society is by expanding individual freedoms through inst instituting a basic income, economic freedom, investing in internet access, rolling back intellectual property rights, 
and rethinking personal privacy, informational freedom, and practicing and encouraging self-regulation, psychological freedom. So this is a bit of a longer passage here, but I believe this is the core of your book. That's why I wanted to read it. It, it, it is. It, that is the core of the argument. Okay, so let's let's try unpacking things uh, one at a time here. Uh, so where where should we start? So walk us first, perhaps, to um, the ethical underpinning of your book, uh, because the interesting thing that I noticed is that you said that your original first draft didn't have any philosophy in it, and then you decided to add that in. And as a philosopher myself, uh, I want to. Uh, and who is like often been uh, uh, blamed for building pies in the sky, <laughs> uh, usually from my engineering friends uh, who are proud to to show something at the end of their workday. I want to ask you as a venture capitalist who is very kind of uh, clear, easy to measure results uh, oriented person, uh, why start with philosophy and why should you think that philosophy is important in this conversation? Yeah, because I think philosophy is fundamentally about understanding the, the why and to what end, um, the goals and, and, and where do values come from. Um, I think that um, what technology itself does is it makes many new things possible. And some of those things are, I believe, good things. And some of those things are, I think, bad things. And so what tells us what's good and what's bad? It, fundamentally, that is what philosophy does. It tells us that some things are good and some things are bad. And so um, I think if we can't agree on some um, underpinnings, then we'll have a very hard time arguing about how we should be using these technologies. Uh, in the book, I give the example that this has always been true about technology. Um, fire, you can use it to uh, cook things. You can use it to melt metals. But you can also use it to burn down other people's houses, right? Um, and so this, this sort of increase of the space of the possible has always meant that we need to make choices. And philosophy is about informing the choices. And ultimately, it's only us humans who can make those choices. It's not, it's not technology. I, I don't, I'm not a technological determinist. I don't believe that just because we have technology, good things will happen. Um, I'm also not a sort of a, uh, you know, a... History is just going to determine itself by its own internal logic, a kind of a Marxian argument, right? Um, so I think we need to make choices. And if we want to make choices, we need philosophy because philosophy tells us how to make those choices. Very interesting. Let me take uh, two, two words there from what you said. One is that you're not a technological determinist and the other is about choices. So let's start with determinism. I, I've interviewed uh, Kevin Kelly before uh, on his previous book, which was called What Technology Wants. And now I have another interview with him next month uh, on his latest book, which I think is called Inevitable. Uh, now, that sounds kind of technologically deterministic when you put the word inevitable there. So if you were sitting in my shoes, in my seat, talking to Kevin Kelly, being that you're not technological determinist, what would you ask him? What would you want to say to, to him? Well, I, I would want to know um, by which mechanism technology um, wants something, and by which mechanism technology determines something. What is the mechanism that makes something inevitable? Mm -hmm. I think he talks about that actually in his previous book. I'm, I'm about to read his, his newest book uh, next week. So, but but uh, as per the mechanism, I think he talks about that uh, in what technology wants, actually. Okay, so now let's talk about the choices because uh, I had an interesting conversation with Jan Tallinn, who is the, the one of the founders of, of Skype and, and uh, also an investor of his own. Uh, and, and we had a bit of a sort of a, Mutual agreement eventually will be reached because he's a very engineering oriented guy. And he was talking that it's all about kind of building the rocket and figuring how to steer it. Whereas I hope to contribute the idea that philosophy is actually about engineering is about the steering mechanism, but philosophy is about whether you want to go to Mars or to Venus or to somewhere else in the first place and whether it's worth it at all or not. I, I, I agree with that. And then the technology lets you get there. Exactly. And, and I thought it's a, it's a kind of a mutually uh, kind of reinforcing. Uh, so you need both, in other yes. words, to do it properly. Absolutely. And 
And, you know, I think we need to figure out, we have amazing new technology and we need to figure out is where do we want to go as a society and as individuals with that technology. And I'm proposing that um, instead of saying, oh, government is going to be smart enough top down or a few smart people, Elon Musk or Albert Wenger are, are smart enough to tell everybody what this is. I would rather remove constraints for individuals so that individuals have more opportunity to make choices for themselves and for themselves to figure out how they want to live in this particular future. Um, because I don't think we're smart enough. That's why I talk about it as a non-linearity. I think when you have non-linearities, prediction becomes very difficult um, or impossible. And so instead of us predicting exactly this is how, what society should look like, I'm talking about increasing the freedom for the system to adjust so that individuals can make freer choices and so that less is bottled up. What I'm very worried about is that we're bottling a lot of things up and um, when they eventually erupt, the change is cataclysmic. It happens, you know, it's like a dam that more and more pressure is building up behind. And instead of letting the water flow in different ways, we're letting it build up and build up on a dam that we can't sustain. Eventually the dam bursts and that's how you wind up with revolutions and wars. Instead of giving lots of room for adjustment and not pretending that we know exactly where it's going to go, but creating that adjustment room. So paint that vision for us of where you propose that in your view, in your value system, you believe we should go. What's the, what's the, the, the point that we should be aiming our rocket towards? So I think that the reason I talk about knowledge society is because I believe knowledge is the foundational human project. It is um, what has gotten us here. Um, it is why you and I can have this conversation over the internet um, and why we're not, you know, working in the fields, barely feeding ourselves. Um, so knowledge is also the foundational human project because at least on this earth here, only humans have knowledge. Um, and by knowledge, I mean something that we have externalized, we can share, we can write it down. It's uh, uh, in a universal language, um, which other humans can read, and that includes music, include art, uh, and includes scientific knowledge. It's a very broad definition of knowledge. Um, but knowledge is sort of the foundational human project. If you look at other species, they may have some forms of speech. Um, they, um, we can debate, they may have consciousness. I believe that animals have some form of consciousness, but they don't have knowledge. Uh, they don't have universal alphabets. They don't have um, ways of recording information that can be shared across time and space with uh, other members of the same species. And I, I do think that makes humans special. In the book, I talk about how it makes humans special in a very precise computational sense, um, which may be too much of a, a sidetrack right now, but there's a very precise computational sense in which the ability to have language, universal language and share it, gives you a much broader set of computation um, than if you don't have it. Um, and so I see knowledge as the foundational human project. And um, if something bad were to happen to humanity as a whole, it would only be as a result of us not accumulating enough knowledge. So we already know that at some point, for instance, our sun will burn out. And if we haven't accumulated enough knowledge to get ourselves elsewhere, we will definitely end at that point. All right. Let me challenge you here just a tiny little bit, if I may, though. See if I can contribute to, to the shaping of that idea a tiny little bit, perhaps, or at least give you a point of, of consideration. So, as you say, now I'm going to quote again directly, because that's the core of your argument. The central argument, that's quote, the central argument of world after capital is the primacy of knowledge for the fate of humanity, end of quote. I'd like to kind of twist that a tiny little bit. So, and going back to our previous point. I don't remember if it's a Chinese proverb and if I'm slaughtering it, but I think it goes something like this, quote, the accumulation of learning is, quote, is called knowledge, but the proper usage of that knowledge is called wisdom, end of knowledge. And I would say that knowledge is things like engineering and science, and that's vital. But philosophy is the part which gives you the wisdom of the best application of that knowledge because you can have the knowledge to break the atom and build an atom bomb. And that's an, an amazing scientific accomplishment, but that can destroy the world. Yeah, I, I, I guess I see. And that's where the application is key. I, I, I guess I, uh, 
this is a great way of asking the question. Um, I guess I see philosophy as being a part of knowledge, right? It's a part of knowledge that informs, and to that extent, maybe you think of it as meta-knowledge. It's a part of knowledge that informs what you're supposed to do with the other knowledge. Exactly. Uh, but I still think we, the reason we have philosophy is because we have this ability to have language. And I do think one of the uh, important um, aspects of knowledge that I talk about in the book as well is that knowledge is uh, subject to the critical process. And the critical process is you and I can have arguments like you just made an interesting argument and you critiqued something I said. Um, and you can also propose something different. Um, and then there, these ideas get to compete with each other. And over time, I think as a result, um, you, you wind up with better ideas through this process. Ideas have sex and the offspring is better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I think um, that's why I see it as sort of the critical human project. Um, I do um, spend some time uh, talking about humanism, which I think is sort of the um, uh, philosophical underpinning um, that comes out of this idea that only we humans have knowledge. Um, and, um, and what that means in, in my mind is that a, we have a very significant responsibility vis-a-vis -vis the rest of all other species that don't have knowledge. Um, we have a responsibility because we have knowledge. Um, the rest of the species do have some limited knowledge, which they use for migration patterns, for finding water, for moving with the seasons to find yes, food and so Yes, on. but it, um, it, it, at the risk of using sort of too many of my own definitions, which I, I think is one of the problems of the book, but, but maybe also I'm, I'm trying to, to, to do this on purposes. Um, there is knowledge that's encoded um, over time through um, the process of evolution. Evolution encodes knowledge. The, the way I've been using the word knowledge is to specifically mean externalized knowledge. And they don't have maps of migrations. The, uh, the you know, wildebeest don't look at a map and say, oh, we should be going here. Like, like they go there because evolutionary, they've learned to go there, but they don't have the externalized thing that lets them go share a map of saying, hey, wildebeest, let's meet over there because that's the next part of our migration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Knowledge clearly is plays a huge role in your book and in your in your worldview. So let me ask you this then. Here you say that we need to roll back the intellectual property rights. So mm -hmm. someone would be curious to find out how is it that you put knowledge as primacy on the one hand, and on the other hand, you want to roll back uh, intellectual property rights. I mean, aren't those uh, created to incentivize the production of new knowledge and protect it and promote more and more and more of it? And therefore, if you roll back those protections, you would end up with less rather than more. Sure. So um, in, in the book, I talk very specifically about both copyright and about the patent system. Uh, and I think that knowledge is a human commons, uh, because as we know, especially with digital technology, we can share knowledge at zero marginal cost. And so if we remove things from that commons, if we restrict how they can be used, there is a cost to society. So yes, um, copyright and patents have an incentive uh, argument to them, but they also have a cost side to them. And what's happening in the digital age is that uh, the cost has been going up, um, the cost of society has been going up. So for instance, the cost to enforce copyright has been going up. At the same time, the benefits from sharing broadly have also gone up. So you're now in a situation where sharing benefits are much larger and the cost to enforcing copyrights have gone way up. And that's a situation where I think you want to rethink how copyright works. Now, I'm not a copyright abolitionist. I don't want to just do away with it. Um, but I think that the only right you should have in content um, as a sort of instant right is the right of attribution. If you want subsequent additional rights, I think we should go back to a system where you need to pay a fee. And the fee is reflective of the cost that society has to enforce your copyright and the cost that society has from you removing something from the commons. And so... That's how the copyright system used to work at, at one point. You used to have to pay a registration fee, and I think that we should return to such a system um, because then I think uh, people will you know, still be able to say, I've invested $100 million in creating this movie or you know, whatever it is, 
and I'm asserting a copyright to this and I have the financial wherewithal to pay a fee, um, that fee can cover um, the systems that can be used to administer um, that copyright and to enforce that copyright. Um, but conversely, if, you know, if I'm just uh, writing a blog post, um, I should just have a right of attribution. People shouldn't be able to just copy it without saying, hey, that's, I took that from Alvin's blog post. But I shouldn't just also be able to go and say, no, no, you like, like you can't put that, you can't quote that, you can't put that on your blog, you know. And what we've been doing is we've been trying to restrict fair use as opposed to expand it. I think we should be expanding fair use, and I think we should be getting to a point where if I really want my blog posts to not be copied by anybody, I should pay a small fee, not a huge fee for blog posts, but a small fee, and 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 then that way we can balance, we can move the balance back to having the right incentive effect, but also recognizing that the cost of enforcement has gone up and the cost of hogging knowledge has gone up significantly. And the same is true in the patent system. Um, you know, a lot of our portfolio companies get sued over very silly patents uh, that um, don't have um, any kind of um, uh, uh, sort of incentive effect. Um, they've, uh, in many times, they've been created specifically um, for the purpose of trying to put a toll on other people who are actually inventing things. Um, and we also at the same time know historically that we, we have other ways of providing incentives for in innovation. Um, prizes are a great example. There's the wonderful historical example of the longitude prize. Now we have the X prizes. Um, and, you know, uh, there are other incentive mechanisms that we have. And finally, I would say, we as humans are naturally, uh, are natural learners, are natural sharers. There are a lot of non-monetary incentives for why people create knowledge in the first place. And we certainly had um, a lot of music being created, a lot of art being created. We had a lot of knowledge being created, scientific knowledge, long before we uh, introduced um, either copyright or the patent system. And uh, if you take an area like math where you have neither copyright nor a patent system, um, uh, I suppose you have copyright technically, um, but you certainly don't have a patent system. We've had uh, people continuing to work on math and sharing very freely, and as a result, there's been just a lot of um, fairly rapid innovation in math in a way that we, for instance, have not seen in the bio biosciences where all the big universities are really discouraging publication or discouraging publication of data because they're trying to file patents and then they only reveal as little as they can. So I think all I'm talking about is rebalancing um, the cost-benefit of uh, the intellectual property regime. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a very interesting point uh, coming from a venture capitalist, by the way, uh, especially one who's published his book under Creative Commons license. Uh, but but I do appreciate that very much. As I mean, I don't know if my my blog qualifies as and podcast qualifies as knowledge. So it certainly doesn't qualify as science. But I've been producing it and giving it away for free for six years now for full time. Uh, so, I mean, th that's one good example that uh, whatever I'm producing is not necessarily uh, incentivized by monetary gains. Uh, but let me talk about another very important part that came actually before uh, in your book, before uh, intellectual property rights. And that's uh, uh, universal basic income, guaranteed minimum income or whatever. Uh, else you want to call it. So let us talk a little bit about that. What is it and why do you believe it's necessary? So uh, universal basic income is the idea of government um, paying every citizen enough money um, every week or month uh, to allow citizens to take care of their basic needs. Um, and so that's being able to buy food, clothing, shelter, um, enough computation power access to the internet. Um, and the reason I believe it is necessary is because I believe it would, it's what makes us economically free. Um, and why do we want people to be economically free? Because we want people to be able to um, choose where they live, how they allocate their time. Um, we have big problems on both of these at the moment and problems that are holding us back. Um, what do I mean by that? If I can hire somebody for $7 an hour to operate a machine, I have no incentive to automate that machine. I have no incentive to invest in the computation that would be necessary or in the robotics that would be necessary to automate that machine. I'm just going to keep the human doing it because it's cheap. 
Um, I think there's a big misreading of the history of European capitalism. People go, well, the unions were bad. No, the unions were great. What the unions did is they made labor expensive. When labor got expensive, people had to build machines. If you compare and contrast that with a place like India, which uh, had labor that was always abundant, was always cheap, there was no need to invest in machinery. Uh, and as a result, they didn't build up enough of a capital. So, I mean, there were other problems, obviously, colonialism, et cetera. So I'm not just trying to point to this particular problem. But the abundance of cheap labor um, retards, slows down the accumulation of uh, capital. And I think we're back at that point where we have what Graeber calls the precariat, where we have people who um, basically can't walk away. They don't have a walk away option. And so they have to work in jobs that we should be applying capital to instead of people. We also have this, everybody moving into cities and people go, you know, people like to extrapolate that trend and they like to say by 2050, everybody will live in a city. Um, but it's not that everybody wants to live in a city. Um, lots of people are essentially forced to live in cities because that's the only place they can earn a, a livelihood. And um, so again, it's not good for us to force people into that. It would be better to let people make a freer choice about where they want to live. And so I think Basic income is fundamentally about freeing people up um, to be proper participants in, um, um, in the labor market, um, to be proper participants in the allocation of their own attention. Um, if I'm constantly running from one low-paying gig to another low-paying gig, I can't really spend my attention on figuring out what it is I want to do. I can't spend my attention on learning a new skill, um, on taking care of a family member or a friend. Um, so I think there's a lot of human attention that's being tied up uh, in ways that it shouldn't be tied up. Mm -hmm. You know, you're probably the fourth or the fifth person on my show who talks about uh, universal basic income. Uh, others have been uh, Jeremy Rifkin, Martin Ford, and Marshall Brain, uh, all of whom have written about that. Um, but so let me ask you this. And each one has a little bit different sort of vision of, of, of the amount and how it's to be implemented. So let me ask you the two most important questions that people would ask you. How do we pay for it and how much? How much sh should we give per person? So I've been saying in the U.S. something like $800 to $1,000 per person per month per adult, um, less for teenagers and, and much, much less for children. That's similar to the Martin Ford amount, by the way. And, you know, it works out um, to you know, call it somewhere around uh, a fifth of GDP. Um, so it's eminently affordable relative to the size of the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, we do in the U.S. have a big problem in that we have, you know, eroded our tax base um, very substantially, and we do need uh, very much a revision of our tax system. Um, people always go, well, if you pay a basic income, you're just making the rich richer and the poor poorer. But that's only because they're looking at it through the lens of the existing tax system. Um, I think if you do away with deductions and if you start taxing first dollar of earned income above basic income at some rate that doesn't have to be exorbitant at all, um, you uh, very quickly get to the point where this uh, makes a lot of sense um, because um, a lot of people, wealthy people, have home mortgages that they deduct. They're, you know. Um, the amounts that they deduct um, far exceed, exceed today what they would be receiving in a basic income. So if you did away with deductions and instead that gave them a basic income, uh, a lot of rich people would be net neutral or slightly worse off, right, because their deductions are so big. Um, so that's one side. The other side is conversely, if you look at the low end of the income distribution, um, Mitt Romney you know, may have lost the election over his infamous 47% remark, 47% um, of the U.S. population, when Mitt Romney made this remark, do not pay federal income tax. Um, now, if you put a basic income as a floor underneath it and you start having them pay, including federal income tax on the first dollar earned, all of a sudden, anybody in that group, uh, there's a lot of people in that group who have income, will start paying income tax. So I think uh, the financeability, the people who say it's not financeable, it's not financeable if you're not willing to make a bigger change. And my people are like, oh, well, basic income is hard enough. How we can re resolve the taxes? And we're like, we're going to need to fix a lot of things. And we might as well admit that we're going to need to fix a, a huge number of things and that you can't sort of fix one thing in the absence of the other. 
If you think about all the things that we changed, and people say, well, that's impossible. How are we going to happen? Well, just look at all the things we changed from moving from agrarian society to industrial society. We changed everything. I mean, we changed where we live. We changed, we went to democracy from mostly like monarchies. Um, we went, we introduced welfare systems. Um, we introduced public education. I mean, we changed everything. And so the idea that like, like this is a um, utopian project that it can't be done because you're talking about changing too many things. In my mind, that's a misreading of history. It's just saying, we've done it before, we can do it again, and we should figure out how to do it. <laughs> and this brings me to uh, back to the title of your book, by the way, and, and a larger point that I want to bring here, which is, what about capitalism itself? I mean, will it go obsolete? Because you're giving those each previous example of, let's call it a singularity of a kind happened. Yep. And it led to a change uh, in the mode of production, which led to a socioeconomic fundamental change to society. So the question is, is this the case again? And does that mean that we should be calling your book in a way or in a way maybe implying or suggesting not world beyond merely capital, but world beyond capitalism? Yeah, I, I here's how it... So let me just... Uh, and, uh, remark on the irony of asking a venture capitalist guy on, on that question, <laughs> because I'm very curious on the answer. Well, I, I think that um, capitalism has very clear limits. And I write in the book about what its limits are. Um, I think it's also a very powerful system. Um, it's a very good system for allocating um, financial capital and turning it into physical capital uh, uh, in areas where markets can exist. So in areas where the price system can work, uh, it is a very, very good system. And I am a big believer in it. Um, I think we are facing uh, many, many areas now where the price system will not work and cannot work and cannot be made to work. Um, free educational content. We want as much of it for humanity as possible. There's no doubt when you look at that through a knowledge perspective. But it's very unclear how you could use prices to create it, right? Yeah, tell me about it. That's my fundamental problem of, of, of suffering. <laughs> so this is so zero marginal cost is a kind of a divide by zero error in economics. Um, the price system doesn't work um, at, at this at this point. Um, there are other places where the price system doesn't work. Um, the price system doesn't work um, for very long tail uh, risks and opportunities. So um, the very long tail risk of being hit by an asteroid, you can't use the price system to allocate resources to this. Um, there is no price um, that would properly allocate resources to it. We have to make a decision, a choice as humans to allocate resources against it. And in the book, I argue that we're vastly under allocating resources. Um, that's a downside. You know, on the upside, if you think about, you know, space travel and if you think about um, fighting cancer and uh, other diseases where we now are making ma major breakthroughs, again, there is, the price system is very bad at this, um, you know, like, what was the price in uh, 1900 for a handheld uh, phone? Well, there was no price. We hadn't invented the stuff that would make it possible to have a handheld mobile phone. And so there was no price. And so... Um, you know, if you tried to do everything by the price system, you would vastly um, under-allocate attention uh, to both downside risks and upside opportunities. And so um, there are natural limits to capitalism, but I don't think capitalism as an allocation mechanism, as a mechanism of competition, for instance, of um, Schumpeterian, you know, uh, creative destruction. Creative destruction. I, I, you know, when I talk about knowledge and the process of uh, uh, the critical process by which knowledge improves. Um, well, in markets where prices work, um, the, the critical process is called competition, right? This is another area where we're having now trouble because we're having very large network effect businesses. We want large networks. We want all of humanity connected on one large network. But now we need to think about, well, how do we have large networks but also still have competition? That's, again, something that you can't just do through prices. Very interesting. So uh, let's go back to, uh, to the basic income idea, though, because someone would say, look, Albert, 
the Swiss, which are a lot more progressive in most ways, one would argue, than the Americans, uh, would turn down the idea of uh, basic income by 76 to 24% just a few uh, days ago. Sure. How does it ever have a chance because it's so easily labeled as socialism in a place like the United States of America? I mean, it's fantastic that the venture capitalist gets behind the idea, but I don't think, I, I still think that the, the, the U.S. population at large would, would still easily be swayed by labeling such as socialism of, of anything remotely re resembling uh basic income. I mean, what's, what's interesting is that the intellectual history of basic income in the U.S., of course, goes back to the founding fathers. It goes back to people like Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. Um, they were very uh, forward-looking uh, people. Uh, at the time, uh, as immigrants were coming, uh, immigrants got land, and, um, and that gave them independence, freedom, economic freedom. Uh, and so... Um, even back then, uh, Payne and, and Jefferson were thinking about, we're going to run out of land, and how are people going to be free? I do think Americans understand freedom, um, and I think once they understand um, and learn more about the intellectual history of this idea and how this idea ties to the idea of freedom, which is so essential to uh, America, uh, I think uh, more and more people will um, get behind this idea. I do think these things take a long time. Uh, I think these are generational uh, changes. Um, I um, read nothing into the Swiss referendum other than it was a very early vote on a topic that will take uh, a decade, possibly several decades, uh, to work its way through. But the intellectual history of it uh, couldn't be further from the history of socialism if you try. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you should stress that a tiny little bit more in your book, uh, the connections to the to the forefathers and stuff like that. But we're we're running out of time. We only have six or seven minutes left. So I'm going to try and see if I can pick up the pace here a little bit. Uh, where does technological unemployment fit into the picture here? Yeah, so um, technological uh, unemployment is a, a very difficult uh, topic because... First of all, do you believe it? Because lots of people would say it's imaginary concept. It doesn't exist. It's a scaremongering from the Luddites that have been proven wrong since the Industrial Revolution over and over again. Yeah, um, so the first argument is just because something's been wrong in the past doesn't mean it's wrong in the future. I mean, we couldn't fly, we didn't know how to do heavier than air flight for a very long period of time, and then we could. Um, we weren't able to train machines to recognize faces for a very long time, and then we could. Um, just because something's been wrong in the past doesn't mean it'll be wrong in the future. Um, uh, economics um, isn't at all... Um, in this regard, uh, normative. Um, uh, labor as a component to, of production um, exists in production functions because we thought it needed to be in there, but there's nothing in economics that actually says it has to be in there. Um, so um, I, I think the, these sort of extrapolations from the past are really, really dangerous when you live in a time where technology changes very foundationally. Um, and I give the example of somebody in the forager age trying to think about the agrarian age, somebody in the agrarian age trying to think about the industrial age. So, um, but here's a, a point that I think is very important to understand. Um, in countries like the U.S., where the labor market is very, very flexible, we're not going to see unemployment per se. We're going to see underemployment and the precariat. In economies that have very inflexible labor markets, we're seeing high unemployment. That's, if you look at Europe, you see high unemployment and you see a strong social system buffering that. If you look at the U.S., you see relatively low unemployment, but you see a, a very quickly rising precariat. And, and, you know, you only have to look at the current election cycle to understand why that's problematic in, a, in its own right, right? So, um, so I think that the, the word technological unemployment, I think, is misleading because in some forms of um, mark, how some countries are run, you will get technological unemployment. In, uh, in others, you will just get a precariat. Um, so... So that's one point. I think the other point is... What do you mean by, by precarious? People who um, live very precarious lives where at any one moment they could slip into complete um, abject poverty, homelessness, you know, lose, um, uh, lose access to the most basic things that can't cover their basic needs. Um, and, and, you know, that's what we're seeing with a lot of people in the U.S. who have to work multiple jobs just to be able to feed themselves, feed their children, pay their 
pay, you know, pay rent, etc. Um, and so, um, but there's no doubt in my mind that the combination of zero marginal cost and universality is completely different from anything that's come before it. And so, because it's so different, making arguments from, hey, it hasn't happened in the past, so it can't happen, is a, a kind of a wrong extrapolation. Mm -hmm. I have three questions that I've selected in the last, in the next three or four minutes. So let's see if we can go through them. Uh, what's the most fundamental misconception or confusion that you tend to encounter most often about important aspects of your book in general and guaranteed minimum income in particular that annoys you uh, and you want to clarify once and for all? Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't annoy me, but, but people do think it's like uh, socialist um, and it's the furthest from that. It is really about individual freedom and making individuals free to participate in markets, including the labor market, um, and to uh, uh, be free to choose where to live, um, with whom to live, um, and what to allocate their attention to. You say you're a short-term pessimist and long-term optimist. Can you unpack that for us in a minute? Yeah, so I believe we will get there. Um, uh, I believe we will get to these increased freedoms, and I believe we will make the best of technology in the long run. Um, and we'll have minimum income implemented in the USA? I, I believe we will have um, minimum income around the world, um, not just in the US. Uh, but I believe the road to this will be long, arduous, um, it will be uh, uh, full of false starts and uh, potentially, unfortunately, it'll be um, full of conflict. Um, I'm writing this book and I'm trying to publish these ideas as much as I can in the hope that we can avoid as much of that conflict. But <clears throat> at present course and speed, I think we're headed for um, some rough years. Second last question is always the same and that is, uh, where can people find more about you and your work and possibly read your book since it's available as Creative Commons license? It's online at worldaftercapital.org and uh, you can also read my blog at continuations.com. Fantastic. So, Albert, the most important question perhaps that I ask is the last question and that is, after spending an hour with you covering your book and your work and your worldviews, what do you think is the most important thing or the single message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you? Understanding that there's a change afoot that is deep, profound, as profound as when we went from bringing agrarians to the industrial society. Everything will change and will have to change. Albert Fenger, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 